Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. To dwell above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with those we know, that's another story. It's true, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to get along with those who are part of our spiritual family, not to mention our biological families. It's difficult, isn't it? But what we're looking at today is the imperative nature of our being lovers according to Jesus' perspective. I'm asking you now to join me. You may want to keep your place there in 1 John if you have your Bible there. And turn with me to the 13th chapter of John's Gospel. We're going to begin where we left off two weeks ago with verse 31. And this is the beginning of what is commonly known as the upper room discourse. It seems like there's an inordinate amount of time spent on that upper room discourse, which probably did not last over a couple or three hours. Because this last part of chapter 13, all of 14, 15, and 16, and then by association, 17 make up what we would commonly know as the upper room discourse. We know the setting. The setting is that Judas has just left the house. And Judas has gone to do his dastardly deed of betraying Christ for 30 coins of silver. And when he leaves, something happens. It's like a great gloom and relief is experienced by those in the room. Jesus and the other 11. We see that in a moment. And before we get to that, look at verse 31. When therefore he had gone out, that's referring to Judas Iscariot, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Let's stop here just a moment. What's Jesus talking about here? He's using what scholars call the prophetic perfect tense, meaning that He's talking about something that is imminent. It's coming quickly like a freight train, actually, toward Christ but it's not yet happened, but it can be spoken of as if it's already occurring. And that would be that Christ says, if I be lifted up, we saw this in chapter 12, where Jesus says, and look at verse 32 of chapter 12 of John, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus reached His apex as a human being in the sense of accomplishing the mission God the Father had given him to do, and he had gladly embraced. And so he is glorified on the cross of all things. It seemed like to the uninitiated observer, this was the worst thing that could happen to Jesus. From a physical point of view, certainly the agony and the humility that went along with that kind of death, the most heinous of all kinds of execution that had ever been devised by any government at that time. 
It was awful to be hanged on a tree, which leads to the humiliation that Jesus as a Jew who was observant of all the law, he knew full well what it signified because in the book of Deuteronomy, the Bible says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's why the Sanhedrin, the antagonist of Jesus, had this trumped up trial against him in order to get him accused of blasphemy against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was accomplished, but also to get him charged with mutiny or treason against the Caesar and get him crucified. So Jesus is seen from the casual observer, the uninitiated observer, as being abandoned by God if you were Jewish and disgraced in the worst way by being crucified if you were a non-Jewish person, a Gentile if you will. He goes on to say in verse 32, if God is glorified in Him, he's talking about Himself, the Son of Man, if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. Jesus is saying, things are going rather rapidly now, men, and what I'm about to do for you has been building and building and building for three years or so, and now it's headed for its climax on the cross. And I will be glorified, and God the Father will be glorified, because I have accomplished the purpose that God gave for me to glorify Him. Verse 33 says, Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I'm going, you cannot go. I'm going to pause here and talk about the one word in the New Testament in Jesus. He used one word that's translated little children. It's the only time this word appears in the entire Gospel of John. It's a word that is used sparingly in the New Testament. It's a word which would be familiar to you if you are a Spanish speaker. And that would be closely akin to mijo or mija in a Spanish-speaking family. That's, a, that's really a sweet way, isn't it? To talk to your child or someone whom you love in your family who's younger than you. And this is the idea. Jesus, now that Judas is out of the picture, He couldn't call Judas one of His little children because Judas was a fake disciple, a false apostle. And so what we know here is Jesus says, okay men, now we can relax. We're a family here. Little children. Perhaps you've had an experience like that as a parent and there's been a moment when it was a hard moment. You're going to be separated from your child. Your child's going away to college, going away to the military. Your child's getting married. Any number of things where you feel an impending loss, and you're not sure what that's going to mean for the child. You have the interest of the child above your own life, but on the other hand, it hurts you too, doesn't it? And Jesus was not without feelings as a human being. He knew what lay ahead, but He had never experienced the total rejection of His Father ever. 
He had not ever had anything but love coming His way from God the Father. But He knew what lay ahead. He was bracing Himself for it. When He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember what happened there? He took His three closest disciples and took them to a certain point, Peter, James, John, in the garden. He said, you stay here and pray. I'm going to go in a little further. We don't know exactly how far he went. Let's say maybe 50 yards in. But the Bible says he flung himself on the ground. And he began to writhe in agony. And as he prayed to the Father, take this cup away from me if it's at all possible. Jesus knew it wasn't, but he was agonizing over what lay ahead. And the Bible says he sweat great drops, as it were, of blood. There is a term, hematidrosis, that's used in medical circles where it has been known when people are under great stress, sometimes the capillaries in their head will burst and there will be bleeding from the pores. Jesus was going through that. He knew what lay ahead. And here we see He was thinking about what was going to happen to Him, but He was most concerned about His men. Do you know Jesus cares more about you than you could ever imagine if you're His child. He loves you. He has a plan for you. His plan is not without difficulty because we are to be conformed to His image. And we know He learned obedience through what He suffered, what the writer of Hebrews says. So this life is not a piece of cake in the sense that we just sort of tiptoe through the tulips and enjoy our time here on earth without any care or concern. The good news, however, is that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose in Christ Jesus. But Jesus is, in a way, dreading what will happen to them. He knows that things will turn out properly for them too. But this is what is on His mind. And He says, you will seek Me but you can't go where I'm going. What's he talking about? Difference of opinion is held on that answer to that question. One, he was talking about the cross. You can't go on the cross. There's only one person who qualifies for that, and that is me. I'm the only one who can take your place and take your punishment and become, like we read from the book of 1 John chapter 4, the propitiation for our sin, which is a long big theological word which means that I am the only one who can voluntarily be the place where God the Father punishes the sin of the world in one person. All the sin. Not just my sin, your sin, but all the sin came down upon Him. So Jesus is concerned about that knowing nobody could do it but Him and nobody could go with Him. And so it was. All the, these men who heard this that Jesus is teaching, without exception, all of them left Jesus. They abandoned Him. One denied Him. They all really denied Him, but we know Peter. He's referred to in the latter part of this chapter. We won't talk much about him today. But he was one who denied Him and Jesus was alone. 
For the first time in eternity, Jesus was alone. And the loneliness was oppressive. It crushed Him when He cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Everybody else has God. Why are You doing this to Me? It was a fulfillment of a prophecy through David in Psalm 22. And Jesus knew that full well. But He experienced all the agony of that because He loved us and none of us could do it for ourselves. A new commandment I give to you, He says here in verse 34, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. Anna Hinke, who was a citizen of Germany in World War II, she was a peasant. She was a common housekeeper. Her income was very, very small. And if she ever had any money left over for anything, she had to plan for weeks, if not months, to save up to buy a token of appreciation for another or something for herself. She was living in Dresden, which was a major city at that time in Germany, and she came from a village quite a few miles away. Her mother's birthday was coming quickly, and she wanted to do something special for her mother. Now please understand, at this time in Germany, because of the war that was going on, there was not a lot of extra money to go around for anybody. Things were rationed. So she scrimped and saved, and she found a way to get enough ingredients to make a special birthday cake for her mother. It was tiny. She made it. She had secured her ticket to go from Dresden to visit her mother on the occasion of her birthday. She got all her things together, went to the train depot, and the platform was just crowded with people. People were traveling. And she was hoping that nothing would happen to keep her from finishing her trip and disappoint her and her mother as well. As she was standing there, a woman with a baby caught her eye. The woman was very gaunt. And as she looked at her clothing, she knew she was not a German. She was of Polish descent. And the Germans hated the Poles. And so this lady was obviously alone in a sea of animosity toward her. And as this lady, Anna, looked at this Polish lady, all of a sudden, it's like a lightning strike in her heart. And what she sensed was God was saying to her, she was a believer, devout believer, take the cake and give it to this lady. She waited for the right moment, and the right moment was when that lady turned away and she very discreetly came up and the little baby was in a tattered carriage and she quietly placed the cake and then just as inconspicuously walked away and faded into the crowd. She had hoped that no secret police had witnessed what she did because that place crawled with Gestapo, the secret police, and they were wanting to nab anyone who was sympathetic toward the Jewish people or the Polish people in particular. And what she dreaded came to pass. A man came representing the Gestapo, 
He said, what is a German woman like you giving something like a cake to a Polish woman? And then God gave this woman great strength, this Anna Henke. And this is what she said. I did not give that cake to her as going from a German to a Pole, but I gave it as a Christian to one who belongs to Jesus Christ. You see, we know from Scripture that in Christ there is neither German nor Pole nor Jew. There's neither black or white or brown or red or yellow. There is no difference. We're all created in the image of God. And when Christ came, He came to liberate us from such thinking. And He put us, as we saw recently, He put us into His kingdom, which is not of this world. We are inhabitants of this world. We have a right and a responsibility as citizens of our nation, which we call our country, but the bigger obligation is to the kingdom of God. And there are no distinctions that are man-made in that setting. And so we see that in this dear lady. This commandment, we're going to take the remaining time talking about two aspects of it. We're going to talk about, first of all, the content of this commandment. And secondly, we're going to talk about the outcome of practicing such a commandment. So we're going to look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you love one another. Three times the word love is used. Each one is a verb. And the last and the first usage having to do with our being commanded to love one another is a present tense command. So what in the world does that mean, Mike? This is what it means. This is what it literally would have meant to those who heard it. Y'all keep on loving one another. It is never permissible from Jesus' point of view that we don't love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We know that our love is to extend beyond the borders of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. However, the more important of my loving a brother or sister in Christ or loving someone in the world is to be found in the way of loving my brother and sister in Christ. I don't have to make that choice, thank God, but that's more important. Why is that more important? We're going to see later the answer to that question. The word that is used here, love, the verb occurs 37 times in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John has been named, and rightly so, the Gospel of Belief. We're always seeing people believing, and we're always sensing the Holy Spirit say to us, believe, 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 believe. It's about faith for sure. But love is a close second, I might add. And in this section that I mentioned, the Upper Room Discourse, 25 of the 37 usages of the word occur here. So this is the last time Christ has the ear in His humanity before He goes to the cross. He has the ear. And believe me, those guys were listening intensely. They did not want to miss anything that Jesus had to say. 
they knew he would not be pulling their leg and would not be misunderstanding what was going to happen, that he was going to go to the cross and die. So, what he wanted them to understand is how this love works. The primary word for love in this day and time in the Greco-Roman culture, the Gentile culture, some would say the pagan culture, was the word eros. That's the way the word sounds in the New Testament language, eros. And ordinarily, we in the church have a negative thought when we think of eros and other things associated with it. In fact, one of my teachers in seminary made a distinction, and he was, he was a great man of, of the Bible, the New Testament especially, in the language of the New Testament, Greek. And he said, making a distinction in his way for us to help us get a grasp, he said, this word eros means all take. It's only in the best interest of the erotic lover to get something without thought of someone else. Another word is the word philia, which is the word of Philadelphia comes from. Philadelphia and Adelphia means sister or brotherly love, depending on the gender of it. It's the city of brotherly love, right? And what we know is that Philia is friendship love. So my professor said, okay men and women, we had a few women in our class at that time, said, okay guys and gals, here's what. What is eros? It's all take. What is philia? It's give and take. It's reciprocal love. I love you, you love me. And we are in that kind of symbiotic relationship where we have that kind of connection. The New Testament word, uniquely New Testament word, is agape. And that, as my professor says, was all give, without thought of getting anything back. That's the kind of love you and I are commanded to have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if I can remember, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But with regard to eros, when you study Greek mythology, what you discover is that there are instances where a hero in a Greek myth actually lays down his life for his family. That's amazing that that would happen. But what we know, and a heroine, there's an example of a heroine who does that for her husband, lays down her life for her husband. Great heroic acts of love, for sure. Self-sacrifice. But here's the catch. This is what is a very subtle difference between when we get to agape and this word eros. The word eros, where it's used in that way positively, has to do with laying down your life for someone who from your viewpoint is worth your love. The word agape is a word which means the sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving, unworthy others. Do you see the difference? There's a huge gap between the two. And we know that's the way that Jesus loved us. We know that God is love, and the word for love there is agape. God is love. And all the commands in 1 John and here in the Gospel of John have to do with that kind of loving. A selfless love. This is what God calls us to be and to do. And that's a tall order, isn't it? Does that 
kind of make you discouraged to hear that? How in the world, Lord, am I going to love like you love? How can I overcome my own selfishness to love in a way that supersedes my capacity? I want to be that kind of lover, Lord, but I don't see how I can do it. I'm selfish, Lord. Well, the Lord knows all about you and all about me. He knows that we're at a deficit because we have to deal with our flesh, but He doesn't leave all that to ourselves. As Jesus was reading from the book of 1 John 4, let's look at it again. You don't have to turn, but you can listen. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Where does it originate? It originates from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. What this suggests is, if I know Jesus Christ, I have been what Jesus describes as being born from above, born again. I have the capacity to love. Why? We'll read a little further. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested where? In us who know Jesus, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live, how? Through Him. Jesus has come to pay the price for our sins. He did that on the cross. He was laying in a tomb. He was raised from the dead on the third day for our justification. And the good news is for us is that He doesn't come just to be around us a while. He comes to indwell us. He lives in us. This is why in the book of Galatians chapter 2, the Scripture says, I have been, this is Paul's testimony, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but the life that I now live in the flesh, meaning His body, I live by the faith, now listen, the King James gets this right, I don't see another, in the New King James, I haven't seen another translation. And I'm assuming I know more than a lot of people. I know when I say that, but I do know the language enough to see it when I read it. By the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So how can I live in that kind of way? He lives in me. He is in me if I know Christ. That's a bold statement. It would be ludicrous if it were not for the fact that He does live in me. He lives in you. He doesn't leave us to our own devices to figure things out. He gives us the power to live as if it were He doing the living through us. Now, none of us does that perfectly because we have the tendency to get back and not listen to the Lord not obey what He says. Jesus talks about the importance of our listening to Him, hearing Him, and then doing what He has for us to do. And He's calling us today to make a shift in our paradigm if it's off base and begin to say, hey, I am called to love by letting Christ have control of my mind and my heart and being steeped in the Bible and believe what the Scripture says and say to the Lord, Lord, I can't do it on myself, by myself. And He says, I know for sure you can't, Mike. But what I do know is, I will give you the power to do it if you will trust me. This is the revolution 
that began when Christ was raised from the dead and then at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and dwelt upon in the hearts of men. Every person who receives Jesus Christ, it can be bona fide. We don't have time to look at it in detail. Every person who receives Christ receives Him by the Spirit of God. You cannot say Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, except by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit comes to indwell me, and part of His indwelling me is I have His character. Love, top of the list, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So Jesus calls us to love one another. This command, a new commandment I give to you, why is it new? Do you know that in the book of Leviticus, I was astonished when I finally read the book of Leviticus. There certainly is something good that come out, comes out of the book of Leviticus. All those laws and all that stuff. Yeah, but in 1918, listen to what it says. And Jesus knew this full well. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is different in that statement? That's a bold statement right there. And the neighbor would be inclusive of all mankind. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. There's the difference. Not love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as I love you. What had Jesus just done a few hours before He gives His teaching? What had He done? He had washed the feet of the apostles. He had assumed the role of a slave, not just a servant, a slave, to wash the feet. And it was emblematic. It was symbolic of their being washed clean. It was a, a prophetic statement about what was going to happen when Christ went to the cross. And He wanted to keep them aware of that and understand this for us today. Here's the difference. It's new in the sense that in regard to the commandment in the Old Testament, which is repeated by Jesus in the New Testament, love your neighbor as yourself, the benchmark is how do I love myself? But in this new commandment, you can see how this is something that takes the power of Christ in us to accomplish. I'm to love you, my brother, and you, my sister in Christ. I am to love you as Jesus were loving you. And the only way that can happen is for us to yield to Him and say, Lord, please use me. Use me, Lord, to love the way You love. That's the content of this commandment. This 11th commandment, if you will. So let's look at what happens when that occurs. What happens if I, and more broadly, let's think about the people who are here today. We had a, a group of people, probably about the same number here at this time, maybe a few less. And then last night, I don't know how many were here because I was not here last night at the worship service. But let's just say in this group, what if, what if say, 20 of us, 20, I think there'll be many more than that, I'm, uh, and many of you are already doing it, so I'm not making any 
statement about anybody here. But let's just say, let's say all of us, we don't leave anybody out. Everybody who knows Jesus decided to trust Christ and ask Him, Lord, I don't know how this works, but I, I think I'm getting it that You live in me and You're calling me to obey You and You never call me to do something that You don't give me the power to do by the Spirit of God. So Lord, I'm just going to have to trust You. That's kind of a novel idea, isn't it? Trusting Jesus. It's the way we're to live the life that followers of Christ are to live. And what happens is He begins to do such work. We want to love one another as He has loved us. How did Jesus love? He loved individually. I had a good time thinking about that in preparation for this message. I did a review of just John. He loved people individually. He loved Peter. When his brother Andrew brought him, he was Simon, the son of John, Peter was at that time. And then Jesus gave him a new name. What did He call him? He said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be Cephas, which is Aramaic. And that is translated into Greek, which is the language in the New Testament, rock. And what we know about Peter, he did not have a rock-like nature, did he? But Jesus was seeing him not as he was, but as he was going to become. And you and I, if we hide behind, well, it's just me. I mean, I don't get this. I'm never going to get it. Uh, thank you, Lord, for saving me, but you picked the wrong guy or gal to do this kind of loving that you're talking about here. Well, forget about that kind. That's, that's, just, that's just a lie. It's a lie of the devil. Because Christ looked at Peter and He said, I'm going to use you. Here's a wonderful way that that's described in John 1.42. This is what the writer says. He says, He saw him. When He saw him, He said, and it's Jesus, when Jesus saw Simon, the son of John, he said what he said, you shall become a rock. The word to see is a word which is a compound word. The word for see is in that compound word, just like many of our words which are compound have a prefix or something added to it, another word to help make it more precise. But this idea is looking into the person, looking beneath the surface, when the Lord looks beneath the surface of your life, if you know Christ, what does He see? Well, He sees some stuff that doesn't belong there. I know that. But He sees Jesus is in us. He sees it. And He wants to use us. And we have to get over the notion that we're just not the right stuff. In yourself and in myself, we're not the right stuff. But in Christ, we are just exactly what God the Father wants. Someone who is a person who loves Christ and who wants to be useful to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus loved people individually. Nicodemus, the nobleman whose son was dying, and he responded, Jesus did, to that situation. And then you have the woman at the well in Samaria, a woman who was a harlot, basically. Then you have another woman who is actually framed and caught in the act of adultery 
brought to Jesus by some dirty old men who were religious leaders. And so they said, what are you going to do, Jesus? And Jesus said, he was without sin, cast the first stone. And then he knelt in the dust and doodled in the dust and a few minutes passed and he looks up and sees this lady humiliated greatly. She'd been misused by men in her life miserably, awfully. And they said, where are your accusers? And she says, well, they're all gone. And the writer says, beginning with the youngest all the way, all through all those people. They all left. And Jesus said, well, I don't condemn you either. But what did Jesus say? Go and sin no more. This is the Gospel. It's not enough to say we love you to people who don't know Christ. We do love them. We should love them. But it's also important to let them come face to face with that thing which is killing them. And I'm not talking about a specific sin or set of sins. I'm talking about a life that's separated from God because of a sinful nature that only the work of Jesus Christ can erase and give you a fresh start. And it cannot be reversed once you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. So, Jesus loves us individually. He loves us generously. He gives His time generously. He says, I'm not going to leave you. I can be with you at any moment, and I will be. I crave, in effect, your time, your fellowship. When He gathered His little band of disciples slash apostles, 12 of them, they'd been working hard, preaching the Gospel, teaching people about the Kingdom of God. And He said, hey, let's go aside. Let's go on a little retreat. And they go in this out-of-the-way place. And the Bible says Jesus was spending time with them. The word spending time is the word diatribo in the original language, the way it sounds. It, it's a word which was used outside the New Testament to describe a piece of clothing that had been worn thin by repeated wearing. A piece of shoes, the sandals had worn out on the bottom. Have you ever had a piece of clothing that you really loved even though it was raggedy? And if you had one go-to piece for lounging around, it would be that piece of clothing. And I've had the experience, as probably most men have, and I'm, I'm kind of taking a pot shot at you all, women, and I, I shouldn't, but I'm doing it anyway. But, but I can remember more than one time going to my wife and saying, hey, have you seen that shirt? And there was a stunned silence, and I said, she's seen it. And she threw it away. She got tired of looking at me wearing that old ragtag garment. But it was so comfortable, wasn't it? And this is a picture of the way Jesus loves us and wants to be with us. He wants to spend time with us. Quality time. And He never is hurried. It's amazing. I'm hurried a lot. Are you hurried a lot? But Jesus, I mean, He has the capacity to be with me and you all the time and to use us to love other people. The outcome is, in this passage of Scripture, look at verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. 
It's important because Christ wants you and me to be the tip of the spear for the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. Let me put it another way. He wants you and me to be those people, those ambassadors for Christ who are the tip of the spear of a great commitment on His part to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. He wants you and me to be His mouthpiece. And I'm not talking about doing what I'm doing. I'm talking about sharing Jesus with people who are desperately in need of a gospel. And He wants to and He will use you and I if we will simply yield to Him. The church of Jesus Christ is the primary mechanism. I don't like to use that word. Probably organism is a better word because the church is compared to a body. It's the primary means that God wants to win the world of Christ. If He saw 300 of us here really loving each other, taking to heart all the one another commands in the Scripture, for instance, accept one another, build up one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, confess your faults to one another, devote yourself to brotherly love one another, devote yourself one another, devote yourselves to brotherly love, and on and on. There are over 30 different commands. One another, one another, one another. And I believe they all branch off this primary command to love one another. It's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. And people will begin to sit up and take notice. There will always be people, Jesus says, who hate the church. And we give good reason on some occasions and in some ways. And we're not to be defensive. What we tend to do is, hey, 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 what about you? What about this? What about the other? We want to be people who are in touch with our own foibles, our own lack of being like Christ, and give it to the Lord. Say, Lord, use me. Help me to be different. Help us to be different. This church, help it to be a church that's known for its being a loving church. That we love each other. We can't know everybody here. Six, seven hundred people here this weekend, maybe a few more. I can't know everybody well. I can maybe know most of your names, which I want to, but the point is, the Lord gives us the capacity to handle some significant relationships and love the people. Correct? And we need to do that. It's what Christ has called us to be and to do. One last observation and we're done. In this passage of Scripture, look at verse 34 once more. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Fix your eyes on that phrase, I give to you. We talk about the gift of eternal life, and rightly so. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank the Lord for that. When you say it's a free gift, we can't earn it, deserve it. But He's also given us the gift of loving each other in obedience to this command. Are you a lover 
of your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you haven't branched out of your comfort zone and begun to get to know people and love people like Christ loved you and still loves you, you're missing out on a lot. You will receive more than you'll ever give if you take that stance and trust the Lord for it. So may God use us. May God use you. May God use me. Let's pray for each other that we would be men and women who obey this commandment and bring honor and glory to Christ and do what God has given us to do, and that is to exercise such love to build up the body of Christ, the church. Let's pray. Father, thanks again for the privilege of being here and worshiping You with these brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh God, we pray, believing what You say, that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Holy Spirit, forgive me. Forgive us for ignoring You, not really believing what You say to be true that You want to spread Your love, not just for our convenience as individuals, but through us, O Holy Spirit, fill us, fill this church for that purpose of glorifying the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.